Good morning to you from WKYT News. This is Kentucky Newsmakers. I'm Garrett Weimer in for Bill Bryant. Later, months and months now of nonstop work for many nurses and frankly experiencing some troubling things during their shifts. It is taking a mental and emotional toll on them. How healthcare workers are battling burnout and how things need to change post pandemic. We will speak with Delanor Manson. She's the CEO of the Kentucky Nurses Association and that is coming up in a little bit. But first, it has long been said that schools should be a safe space for kids. And yet again, multiple incidents this week have shown the threats students can face on a daily basis. Now on Tuesday, four Fayette County high schools had to be evacuated over bomb threats. The caller demanded a ransom of $500,000 in Bitcoin. Now thankfully no one was hurt and the buildings were cleared. Then on Wednesday in Louisville, one teenager was killed and two others injured in a drive-by shooting at a school bus stop. And parents said, that's not the first time that corner had been caught in the crossfire. Then another scary situation at Jefferson Town High School on Thursday going on lockdown when police say a former student accessed the building and then in Lexington on Friday, a threat at Tate's Creek High School. So how can administrators, teachers, parents and students adjust and be prepared as the nature of threats to school safety continues to evolve? John Akers is the executive director of the Kentucky Center for School Safety and he often works with school districts across the Commonwealth on ways to better protect students, faculty and staff. And John, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Uh, John, given your perspective, uh, what goes through your mind on weeks like this? To be perfectly honest with you, I'm scared. Scared for our teachers, scared for the kids, scared for the parents. That behaviors have escalated to a point to where it's getting dangerous. Just not only inside the schools, but outside in the communities. And so uh, it's going to take basically the whole village to come together to do what we can to make these neighborhoods and these schools safer. It seems like every day this week it was something different. Uh, mm -hmm. How do these incidents this week show just how kind of widely varying the issues uh, that we're talking about, these safety issues facing these students, these parents? Uh, how does this week kind of show that? Well, you know, I go back to where I, my experience as a high school principal for, you know, 25 years here in Fayette County at two high schools. When I left that, you know, those jobs and took on this job 20 years ago, I thought I knew it all. But I was amazed at how many things I didn't know was going on in school safety. It's a very changing, very dynamic situation on school safety issues, and it's manifesting now with you know these behaviors that we're shooting, we're having uh, bullying going through the roof, we're having adverse childhood experiences just coming in, uh, where kids are being traumatized, uh, maybe outside the schools, maybe in the homes, maybe in the neighborhoods. And all these things are in, in a compilation of issues that are greatly affecting what's going on in the school environment. And so it's changing so much we're trying to stay ahead of the game. For example, this, you know, I just sent out something this morning uh, to the uh, uh, people for Monday on this TikTok challenge where they have listed by month what behaviors they want the kids to do in schools. For example, last month they were tearing up bathrooms, tearing off toilet seats, tearing off uh, soap dispensers. This next month, and I won't go through that whole list, but there's a whole listing of those things that are going down. The media, when I talk about the media, I'm talking about the social media, sometimes isn't our best friend. How has it, you know, you mentioned your decades of experience uh, in schools and then now as a, as a safety expert, how have the threats kind of uh, facing students in schools evolved and what role has social media played in that? Well, I think it's quite obvious that uh, you look at a lot of the research out there about the amount of violence that's out there 
uh, with the movie industry, with the uh, with the video game industry, and things like this, uh, and and some of the shows that are on TV, you know, really get into teenage violence. You get into, and I won't get into specific shows here, but I think you know what I'm talking about. That uh, those are things that greatly impact a child's psyche on how I might want to be perceived when I get out of my door and put on my. Uh, uh, personality, so to speak, as I walk into a school. And so it's important for us to realize what's impacting these children uh, at a level of what can we do, both with the school folks and their parents bonding together, what can we do to help raise these kids? Uh, you know, we know most of the time the, the school day is safe, relatively uneventful, uh, you know, classes, tests, lunchtime, uh, homework, after school activities, the, the whole gamut there. but. Um, for parents, when these incidents happen, it is scary. What's, what's your message to parents? Well, I go back to that theme again, that um, you look at the, the, the amount of time we have with kids during the calendar year. We have them for 15% of a calendar year. So we can't be held totally responsible for these things. Again, I go back to our partnership issue, that if we can get the parents to understand that we need their help, if they hear something, if they see something, say something to us, so that we can go ahead and try to resolve these issues when the kids come through our doors at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, we have, uh, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the uh, thing at Tate's Creek. Um, that came in through our tip line. We have a partnership with the Kentucky Office of Homeland Security that runs our tip line that they can get tips from text messaging, from telephone calls or emails. And so that tip came in, oh, I want to say about 10 o'clock on Friday, oh, on Thursday, I guess it was. and. Uh, Dr. Marty Mills over at H. Creek jumped right into it right immediately, and I think about midnight, he sends out a, an email to all the parents and say, we had this threat, we're taking care of it, we want you to know uh, we need your help at home to get as much information to us. So that goes back to that theme I'm talking about, about what can we do to partner with the parents, grandparents, uh, guardians, to see what we can do to keep all these kids safe the best way we can. We just can't do it by ourselves. In the past couple of years especially have been very challenging for school districts, no surprise there. Uh, and, and the Kentucky Center for School Safety I know works closely with school districts. Uh, from your assessments and kind of evaluations and, and work with them, what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges these schools are, are facing right now and, and, and how are you helping them address those? Well, there, you know, uh, when you look at school safety, it's a comprehensive approach. You have basically two camps. You've got a hardware camp, making sure that the school facilities are safe as can be. And our governor sent out $18.2 million out there to help upgrade school physical plants. So that's one thing we're trying to do to make sure that the locks are working, that the uh, doors are working uh, as far as the uh, uh, electronic doors let people come in to control access to our schools. So we're trying to do the best we can with that, and that 18.2 was a great jump start for that. The other part of this thing is what I call the hardware, which means obviously the mental health side of this thing. And they're, they're equal co-partners in trying to uh, develop a, comp a comprehensive approach to school safety. So we want to look at these adver adverse childhood experiences that these kids are being traumatized at home and in the communities with, and how do we address those when they come to our schools. Now the legislation that was passed and approved by our governor talked about having threat assessment teams in each school, and they're all trained up on to look at if a child is starting to manifest behaviors that might be out of the norm, then they will have a multidisciplinary team that will run that child's profile through a, uh, a matrix of questions and stuff to try to determine, triage is the word I like to use, to determine if that child needs to have further professional mental health care. 
uh, schools don't provide that. We're not care centers per se. We're triage centers, and so we will we will make sure that that child has the right uh, um, recommendations to help try to help him or her through whatever problems they're having. A big part of that hardware you talk about those re those relationships between students and their teachers, their parents. Uh, are you seeing that the, the semesters spent on virtual school have maybe stunted uh, the growth of those relationships that can, um, that can help kind of you know, prevent some of that stuff? I think so to a portion of that, but you know, I go back and throw, uh, I'm an educator 51 years, so I want to be defensive of my teachers, obviously. They were hit with a really difficult situation. They've been used to teaching in person. Then we have this horrendous disease that's out there. So they're making the best that they can with a bad situation with this virtual learning and stuff. So they're trying the best they can. And I've seen wonderful uh, episodes of teachers uh, doing special things virtually to try to let the kids know they care. They're driving by their houses and waving to them. They're giving out candies. They're, they're wearing special outfits to get the kids to smile a little bit and things like that. But there's nothing better than having the teacher and the kid together face to face. But when you're faced with a pandemic like we're doing, and in my years, the 73 years, I've never seen anything like this before. So it's a it's a day-to-day -day thing. Something new pops up, as you guys find out on the news media every day. You're telling us something else we didn't know about this pandemic. And we're are trying to get to address that in our schools. And so I want to say a special shout out to our teachers and administrators for all the wonderful work that they've done in our schools. As we kind of wrap up here, uh, these are community-wide problems, yes. certainly not isolated to schools. So how do we address them um, as a community moving forward? Awareness is the first thing that pops in my mind. Be aware of what's going on in your surroundings. There's a term that we like to use called situational awareness, that if we see things that look just a little bit outside of the norm, don't think that, well, that's just kind of a weird thing and I just don't want to think about that. You might call the principal, you might call the SRO in the school systems. Here in Fayette County, you have wonderful law enforcement that are in the schools that do great things, set up good relationship with the kids. And, and if you, as a parent or as a guardian, see something or hear something, give a quick call. It may be nothing, but then it might be something that might trigger another incident that we might be able to avert something like that. And so it gets back to that whole community thing again. If we can all work together, I think great things can happen. And you do have a tip line. Yes, we have a tip line with the Kentucky Office of Homeland Security. And we've sent out publications to all of the uh, schools with posters and things like this. And uh, uh, we're just very pleased that uh, we have that partnership with Homeland Security. All right, John Akers, Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for School Safety. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Well, coming up, battling burnout among nurses and prioritizing healthcare workers on the front lines. That's coming up on Kentucky Newsmakers right after this. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Surges in COVID-19 cases during the epidemic have exposed shortages in our hospitals. ICU nurses are often working longer shifts and aren't always addressing the emotional toll of the virus, and that is leading to burnout for many nurses. State leaders have acknowledged the toll it's taking on our frontline healthcare workers. WKYT's Kristen Kennedy looked into how that impacts Kentucky and how former nurses are helping out. I started out as a nurse um, straight out of college, out of nursing school at UK in their cardiac ICU. Talk to any nurse long enough. You watch somebody die, you go in, you hold their hand, and then you clean their body up. And you're going to hear stories of struggle and stress. 
nurses are always there. You know, they're always at the bedside. They're always with the patient. And so that, you know, that does take a toll. It's incredibly taxing and there's zero resources to help you. Pre-pandemic, the nursing field was a tough one. Now, tough is an understatement. Emotionally, physically, mentally draining. And the only thing that you get is, can you work another day? Can you work another day? Can you work another day? Nurses are helping more patients than ever fight a relatively new virus. And I just want everybody to know that this pandemic is real. The National Guard and teams from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services are helping overwhelmed hospitals like St. Clair Regional Medical Center in Moorhead. But who's helping the overwhelmed nurses? Nurses as providers, we're notoriously bad for caring for ourselves. Kent Brower is a registered nurse and a professor at the University of Kentucky's College of Nursing. He gives his nursing students a toolbox of resources to help with burnout. Showing people that there are a multitude of ways that you can de-stress, that you can relax, that you can create what we like to say resilience, right? And that's really the ability to bounce back in the face of adversity, stress, trauma, um, so what we're seeing now. UK Hospital offers pastoral care for its nurses and a program that provides peer support. I think a lot of people may not understand what we go through, but other nurses do, other healthcare providers do. Now you have COVID, you have the increased workload from COVID, you have the decreased staffing ratios because nurses don't want to work anymore, which is only in turn making nurses burn out quicker and wanting to leave. Former nurses Morgan Curry and Shane Sloan are supporting their friends still working in the field. They are creating a program to assess and help with burnout. It's a software um, that can be sold to hospitals that can be used not only on the nurses that need it, right? but also by the nursing managers, nursing administrators, and the executives. Do you think if you had access to this type of software, to this program, you would have stayed in the industry a little longer? I think that this would have really helped me. I didn't know how to cope. I was young, I was a baby nurse. I was 21, 22, 23 years old. If I knew that it was gonna help me, I would do it all day long. The program is for nurses and their supervisors. If you're an executive, you're looking at certain things. You're looking at what are my turnover percentages? How many nurses are leaving? How many beds am I losing because of this? And at the end of the day, that's money, money, money. Stress, stress, stress. Something no nurse needs more of right now. I think it's so important that we continue to take care of ourselves while we're taking care of others. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, you know, our patients aren't going to receive the best care. In Lexington, Kristen Kennedy, WKYT. So as we continue to fight this pandemic and hopefully soon come out on the other side, what needs to change? How do we prioritize frontline health care workers? Delanor Manson is the CEO of the Kentucky Nurses Association. She has degrees in nursing and health care management and even served 27 years in the U.S. Navy. And she is joining me via Zoom from Louisville, where the KNA is based. And Delanor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, even before the pandemic, I think you could ask basically anyone and they would say that nursing is an important profession, a noble profession, uh, but this pandemic really has shown us just how crucial. I, I agree. Um, even before the pandemic, um, nursing has been important, but as um, acute care nurses, long-term care nurses, hospice nurses, nurse leaders have had to uh, be in the fray to combat COVID. I think people realize that nurses are um, 
they're a very important profession to the healthcare um, workforce. And yet burnout uh, is real. What sort of emotional and mental toll does dealing with these things day in and day out really take on nurses? Well, because it's gone on so long and because of the work that nurses do where they're in contact with patients and families on a daily basis, and, and in the case of the nurse leaders, they're in contact with the nurses who are in contact, in contact with the patients and family. It's just, it takes a toll. They don't have time to recover from caring from pe for people who are dying. They don't have time to recover from um, having to monitor all of the equipment. They just do not have time to recover. And so when you talk about burnout and you talk about the stress that's going on with most of the nurses in the profession, it's, I, I don't think that we're seeing the level of burnout that we're going to see because I think it's going to get worse. I mean, because um, individuals, when they go home, you know, they're getting ready to come back to work and they're showing up every day. So I think that it's going to be worse before it's better. What needs to change? Well, if I could make nurses in the basement of my home, that would be a good start. But since we don't have the ability to do that, I think we need to look at what things can we do differently? How can we structure our teams and how we care for patients and families? Um, how can we uh, do things that maybe don't need to be done by a, a nurse? So how do we structure that uh, team? We're talking about doing blended teams, which in the old days was what we called um, team nursing. And um, in recent years, that's not something that nurses have been doing. They've been doing more of a primary care type of model uh, practice for, for nursing. So um, I would say looking at how we structure, how we take care of nurses, also looking at how can we give nurses um, short and important ways to recover from the stress of the day. Um, we also need to look at how do we get more nurses uh, for the future? Because before the pandemic, we had a, a shortage of nurses and nurses are leaving the profession now because they're just tired. And they're leaving the profession now because they can't get it all done and it makes them feel horrible. So we need to look long-term. We need some short-term answers and we need some long-term answers. And the long-term answers are, how do we get more more people to go to nursing school and to become nurses? And um, that's going to take us a while to get that done. Well, some lawmakers want to see a, a second special legislative session to, to help relieve those nursing shortages. What can be done, what needs to be done to better recruit and retain nurses? Well, you know, there are a lot of travel nurses that are coming to help us. Um, and they make um, a lot of money. And they're working alongside of nurses who have um, had their commitment to their communities and they have not left and they've not become travel nurses. So one of the things that needs to occur is that we need to increase the wages for nurses. Um, we also need to uh, look at how do we get the travel nurses to come to Kentucky and then how could we retain them? So, and also we're asking nurses to move out of their comfort zone in many cases. For instance, nurses who've worked in ambulatory care or they've worked in other levels of care 
are being asked to work on med surge floors and ICU, and they need extra training. And so we need to have the ability to provide that training, and that might be bringing back nurses who have retired who will come back as um, mentors and instructors. And that takes money to do that as well. So we need money to make that happen. Are there resources available to help those nurses currently in the field kind of help deal with uh, the stress and the emotional and mental toll uh, to kind of prevent that burnout from happening in the first place? Well, one of the things that most people are not aware of is that you need to have skills and ways to manage stress before the stressors come because learning how to manage stress when the stressors come um, leaves you behind the eight ball. So there are uh, programs. We have a premise called Continue Nurses Helping Nurses. We have a toll-free number. We have nurses uh, waiting to talk to nurses about what's going on. But what I hear from many nurses is, you know what? When I get finished with what I'm doing, I'm just tired and I just want to go to sleep. The problem with that is when they're sleeping, they're thinking about working. And so there are uh, programs through the Kentucky Nurses Association, also through the uh, American Nurses Association. Um, However, many organizations are instilling some on-site mental health support as well. Uh, what are your, yours is an organization that advocates for those in the nursing field kind of what are your organization's priorities right now as we do continue to battle this pandemic well first of all um, a little bit about um, the Kentucky Nurses Association we, we are um, we represent 90,000 nurses that's how many nurses that we have in Kentucky but some of them are retired so that 90,000 number might not be as accurate as we'd like for it to be Um, Our priorities are, as you say, advocating for the nurses, and we just testified um, in um, Frankfurt on, I think it was Wednesday, in front of the Interim Joint um, Health and Welfare Committee. Uh, The President, uh, Donna Metter, spoke to the legislators to tell them what we need. And part of that is we need more nurses and the way we get more nurses is to get some money and also to be able to train um, nurses to do things, well, to train others to do tasks that are not specifically nursing. So our priorities are supporting the nurses, seeing how we can help them in terms of mental health Uh, finding more nurses to help um, address the shortage. Those are our priorities right now. All right, and we are running out of time here, but one last question for you. Going forward, how how can we better uh, prioritize frontline healthcare workers in your opinion? Well, there. Well, I'd also like to ask. Um, the prioritization is important, but also the appreciation. You know, all of those nurses who are showing up every day, they need a thank you, and that's not happening nearly as often as it should. So, how do we prioritize? Uh, we prioritize by um, providing more resources. Uh, to the nurses at the bedside, the leaders also in long-term care and in hospice care. Delanor Manson, CEO of the Kentucky Nurses Association, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 
Well, coming up, a largely unknown Senate figure shaping decisions on Capitol Hill. That's coming up on Kentucky Newsmakers right after this. The immigration system is broken. Both sides of the political aisle will tell you that, but not surprisingly, they can't agree on how to fix it. Now a below-the-radar, nonpartisan Senate official has gotten involved. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the details in this full-court press fast break. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here's your full-court fast break. A largely unknown, unelected official making key decisions on Capitol Hill. The Senate parliamentarian throwing a wrench in Democrats' plans for immigration reform. Many in Congress want to offer a pathway to citizenship to millions of undocumented immigrants. Senate Democrats hope to do it in the $3.5 trillion budget bill using reconciliation, which only requires a simple majority vote. But the parliamentarian says that immigration proposal does not meet reconciliation rules. She ruled the proposal would create tremendous and enduring policy change that dwarfs its budgetary impact. But who is a Senate parliamentarian, and what does she do? Elizabeth McDonough was appointed to the job in 2012. She serves as a nonpartisan Senate referee interpreting chamber rules and procedures. Senate parliamentarians have no specific term length. They serve at the pleasure of the Senate Majority Leader. And while their decisions hold a lot of sway, they are not written in stone. They're only recommendations. The Senate can override a parliamentarian's ruling with 51 votes. In this case, every Democrat would have to be on board, and Vice President Kamala Harris would have to be the tie-breaking vote. So will Senate Democrats try to overturn McDonough's ruling? Seems unlikely. Democrats say they are considering other paths. They could reduce the number of immigrants impacted by the bill, adjust the level of protection the bill would offer, or they could move to update the immigration registry. The registry offers a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants who came to the United States before 1972 and have lived here ever since. Democrats may try to update the cutoff date, making it later. That would offer more people legal status. If they do that, you can expect major GOP pushback. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 on WKYT. And thank you for joining us on this weekend's edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. You can always find the latest episode on WKYT.com, inside the WKYT News app, or on the Kentucky Newsmakers podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Garrett Weimer, in for Bill Bryant. Have a great Sunday and take care.